over to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. We'll read verses 28 through 32. Jesus speaking here. But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessings on our study of your word this morning. We thank you for the way in which it challenges us, it encourages us, it exhorts us, it corrects us. And I pray that this morning we would allow your Holy Spirit to examine our hearts and minds. See if we really are in the faith. See if we really are children of yours. We thank you for the adoption that is ours in Jesus Christ. And we pray that even this day you might adopt some children into your family. We pray all this in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. Well, this past week at Oak Ridge Christian Academy, it's finals week for our upper school students. It's a time of year where everywhere students are preparing and taking end-of-year tests. I don't know how many students are uh, brimming with excitement as they think about the prospect of taking semester exams. Certainly all of us can remember back to those days if you're not there right now. And I wonder what was going through all of your hearts as you approached these tests. It represents several months of learning and there's a whole lot of studying that goes into these semester exams. And it's not always a fun prospect, is it? As students, we don't typically like to be tested. But there is a deep joy and freedom that comes with the hard work and discipline that's required in order to meet with tests and do well. Tests are a means of discovering what students have actually learned and what it is that they have mastered. When properly constructed and delivered, a test can evaluate the aptitude and skills and abilities of students. It kind of functions as a snapshot and it's useful both to the student as well as to the teacher. Teacher knows what is going in and what is not. The student also becomes quite familiar with what has gone in and what has not. Now, there are some tests that, you know, can be given in typical Scantron media. Many of us have taken at least a Scantron test in our, in our lives. Maybe some of you are a little bit older and haven't. But marking in these little bubbles, we've all done these sorts of things, multiple choice questions. And there's a sense in which those types of tests can give us a grasp of the content, abilities of, of a student, what it is that they're able to identify a right answer from a list of wrong ones. But there are some things that require much more thorough answers than just a multiple choice one. How can you test someone's writing or speaking ability apart from having them write and speak? And then there are other qualities that you can't evaluate via true-false, multiple-choice, mathematical proof, or even essay answers. They just, those sorts of questions are not equipped to evaluate some other sorts of qualities. For example, how do you know if a friend is able to maintain a confidence? How do you know if he or she won't blab a secret? How do you know that? Do you just give them a test? Pull out the Scantron? Does that get you there? How do you know if someone's heart is consumed with greed? Do you just ask them on a test? Is that how you determine that? How do you know if someone is dependable? How do you know if someone is trustworthy? Can you give them a multiple choice question on that? Can you give them a true false question on that? How do you know if someone is willing to forgive offenses? How do you know if someone is willing to forgive in general? You see, with all these matters, you don't really know apart from specific scenarios in which those qualities are put to the test. 
a written or verbal test is not the best form of examination. And that's because so often our words speak a much bigger game than our actions back up. Right? If I Should I forgive? Yes. <laughs> We're able to answer those sorts of questions. But will I forgive given this scenario? That's where our beliefs are really put to the test. Nothing less than observing a person's behavior will, within a specific scenario, will really tell us where they are in these sorts of qualities. What one believes will show itself. But there has to be a context for those beliefs to kind of crystallize themselves into actual action. For example, how do you know if you have courage? How do you know you have courage? Unless you have some difficult scenario that you have to deal with. How do you know if you're going to maintain integrity? Apart from the temptation to cut corners. How do you know how you'll fare against peer pressure? Unless you have peers who are also pressuring you. How do you know these things apart from a scenario in which it might be worked out? You see, our actions are themselves an evaluation of what we really hold to be true and right and good. Abraham is a great example of this. There's at least two occasions in his life in which he's put to the test. We read of these two occasions in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going to a place where he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, listen, not knowing where he was going. How do you know if you're willing to sacrifice present comforts at home, to follow the Lord wherever He'd have you go, apart from actually doing it. How do you know? How do you know that you would follow Him wherever He calls, unless you were presented with a scenario in which you were asked to leave? Hebrews 11.17, another test given to Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. How do you know that God has chief place in your heart apart from being tested regarding the gifts that God has given? How do we know that God is our true treasure rather than stuff that He has given us apart from having the stuff in some way tested or removed? How will you respond in that sort of situation? You see, we learn so much about our hearts in those moments. There are tests that we're presented with every day of our lives. And they say so much about what we really believe. And who we really are. Abraham, when he's about to bring the knife down on his own son, the angel of the Lord calls from heaven to him, Abraham, Abraham, do not stretch your hand out against the lad and do nothing to him. Listen, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Job was in a similar situation. Remember, Satan's speaking with God. He says, yeah, you know, the only reason that Job is a man of integrity is because you've protected him. You've covered his life with blessings. But rip those things away from him and you'll see him curse you. God allows Satan to wreak havoc on Job's life. He brings tragedy and loss and loneliness and misery. And if, as you remember the way the story goes, just one after the other after the other. He loses all of his animals, his children, all this stuff. Even his wife is telling him to curse God and die. He is left there scraping his boils in ashes. A few friends come along, helpful for a few days in which they're silent. They open their mouth. They're no help to Job. It's just a big argument for the rest of the book. And yet... Job's integrity was proved that it wasn't dependent upon temporal blessings. He remained consistent in his belief in the Lord. Jesus here in Matthew 21 brings up the issue of sonship. Here's the question. What test can be given to see whose son you are? How do you determine paternity? How do you know who is your daddy? How do you know who is your father? Now, medically speaking, we've seen great advances in paternity tests in the past 100 years. Back in the 1920s, blood typing was first used to provide about a 30% accuracy. You could exclude about 30% of people by doing blood, blood uh, testing. Further advances made in the 30s and 40s by using blood and bodily fluids provided a 40% accuracy. Further developments over the next 50 years up until the 1980s allowed researchers to conduct 
paternity tests in which they can have an 80 to 90% accuracy. And now, with our knowledge of DNA and DNA testing, parentage can be established within 99.99% accuracy. So biologically speaking, how do we determine who's your daddy? We can take a DNA sample and figure that out. We can put it in a test tube. And we can, with very, very small statistical error, determine who someone's father is. But is this the only way to determine who someone's father is? And what about cases of adoption? Are they still your father? Is the test tube the only way to determine whether you're someone's son? Well, now, most people we know today also use something on the fly, and it's called family resemblance, right? This works particularly well when we're talking about biological children. A child looks like his father and mother. Certainly, when it comes to biological children, this physical appearance is quite evident, but whether biological or adopted, children bear marks of resemblance to their fathers and to their mothers. Now, parents, this is both a joy and fear for us, isn't it? We wish we could just take all of our excellent qualities and just download those into our kids, right? And then all the rest just be left off the table. That's what we hope to happen. Um, but we know that the good and bad get transferred along from us. So for better or for worse, our parents impact us. But this is no more evident than when we think of this in spiritual terms. We listen to and imitate and follow our spiritual father. It's just a matter of who is your father. Jesus said it this way in John 8. They answered and said to him, Pharisees here, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Note, what is he looking for? There is family resemblance. If Abraham is your dad, you will live as Abraham did. That's what Jesus' argument is here. If you're really children of Abraham, then you would do what Abraham did. But as it is, Jesus continues, you are seeking to kill me, a man who's told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we're not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? And then Jesus answers, it's because you cannot hear my word. Listen. He's speaking to the religious leaders. You are of your father, the devil. He says, your daddy is the devil. So Jesus says to these religious leaders, and you, do the, you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. He's a liar and father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you, you, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why don't you believe me? Listen, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not from God. Here's the question before us this morning. Who is our father? Jesus makes quite plain here that it's one or the other. Spiritually speaking, there are no orphans. By default, by our rebellion, everyone by default is a child of the enemy. The only question is, whether or not you've been adopted into God's family. You see, God is willing to adopt sinners into His family, but there's only one way to become a child of the one true King. Here in Matthew 21, days before Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus is answering questions from these Jewish religious leaders who are bent on murdering Him. And interestingly, much of the discussion involved here revolves around Jesus turning questions back around at the Pharisees. They're going to bring some questions and he's going to turn them around. They'll have groups of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and each one in turn Jesus is going to be dealing with and oftentimes the way he handles it is by asking some questions of his own. We find Jesus here in this particular passage once again employing parables to accomplish his ends. And in just a few verses, Jesus shines the light of truth upon these wicked leaders' hearts he puts them under examination. Jesus here presents a test only sons pass. He presents a test that only sons 
pass. We're going to walk through this in three stages. The first is an invitation to think. Secondly, is a command to go. And thirdly, is a call to repent. An invitation to think, a command to go, and a call to repent. So just noted, some tests involve much more than thinking. But all tests certainly involve the mind. And the Lord here, in trying to check these religious leaders' heart problem, puts a simple question to their intellects. Because the Lord is concerned with the way that we think. We are called to think and reason rightly, clearly, accurately. Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Matthew 22, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love God with all of your mind. Romans 12.2, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Lord is concerned with how we think. And so Jesus here addresses a question to the religious leaders' intellects. He offers them an invitation to think. Point number one, an invitation to think. And he calls them to make a judgment. Jesus has just rebuffed a question from the religious leaders regarding John. or I'm sorry, regarding his own authority. They asked Jesus, where did you get this authority? On whose authority are you doing these things? Probably in question here is Jesus' miracles, his teaching. And, oh yeah, remember, he just cleared out the temple, right? It's like, by whose authority are you doing all of this? Jesus says, I'll answer your question, but before I do, you answer mine. A typical rabbinical process. And so he puts forward this question. John the Baptist, did he come from God or from men? And the Pharisees instantly know that they are trapped. They neither wanted to say that John the Baptist came from God, because if they said that, then Jesus would reply, well, then why don't you follow John the Baptist? And what did John the Baptist do? He gave testimony regarding Jesus, he pointed to Jesus. So, if you believe that John was from God, then you need to also believe his testimony was from God, which means that I am from God as John declared I am. They can't say that. But they're caught between a rock and a hard place because they also don't feel the desire to say that he was not from God, even though that's what they actually believed. That's what they wanted to put forward. But they don't. Why? They're scared for their own skin. Right? There's a lot of people that believe that John was a prophet. And they know that the potential is that the crowds around them might even stone them, is indicated. So they're scared for their own life. So what do they do in such a case? What do duplicitous people do in such a case when there is no way out? You lie. And in this case, they say, we don't know. Understand, that ignorance is a lie. They know exactly what they think about it. They've deliberated this thing in their minds. They don't want to give a straight answer because they're covering over what they really believe. Now, Jesus' response here is just brilliant for two reasons. One, because his question ends up exposing their duplicity. He exposes the fact that they're not dealing in truth. And people who don't deal in truth don't deserve the truth. Jesus says, neither then will I answer you. Note, will I answer you? Neither will I answer you. So you wouldn't answer me, neither will I answer you. You're dealing in falsehood, I'm not going to play your game. So that's one part of it that's brilliant. But the other part of it that's brilliant, and the reason why I think the Pharisees don't want to press the matter, is because Jesus is giving indication of where he's about to take them, and they don't want to go down that road. They don't want to talk about John the Baptist. They don't want to have a discussion with Jesus about the finer points of John's ministry. They don't want to have that sort of discussion. And so Jesus is also not only, quote, quote, avoiding their question, but he's also subtly putting forward where the direction of his answer would go. Remember, God had sent a forerunner before Jesus who had announced his coming. And that man was John the Baptist. But just because the Pharisees don't want to talk about John anymore doesn't mean that Jesus is done. Have you ever had a moment like that? Kids, have you ever had a moment like that? Like you've gotten in trouble for something, you just want the thing to go away, and your parent continues to press the matter, and you'd rather just leave it be and not deal with it any further, but they continue to press the matter. Here we have Jesus. Remember the Pharisees, they're kind of quieted after having been posed this question. They say, I don't know. We don't want to deal with this. But Jesus presses the issue. He won't leave it at that. And we're going to see him talking about John the Baptist yet again in this little text that we're looking at this morning. Now, Jesus does this in a marvelous way. Remember, these religious leaders prided themselves in making spiritual judgments, right? They are the authorities. They make judgments of this sort all the time. 
That's the reason when Jesus asks this question, what do you think about the authority of John the Baptist? They should be ready for a question like that. How dare they say they don't know? What good are they if they can't make a statement about whether or not this man who's making these huge, bold claims out in the wilderness, whether or not he's from God? That is a huge implication. For them to say, I don't know, is just exposing so many horrible things inside of their hearts. So now, Jesus says, well, let's engage in a little bit further of this. Give me your opinion on this. Give me your perspective. Give me your judgment on this particular situation. By the way, this is a really good side note tip in discussions with people. When things get really, really philosophical, if you have a friend or someone who just loves to wax eloquent on philosophical uh, truths, and you just can never really seem to get them to brass tacks, like, what do you actually believe? You know, they just talk in these hypotheticals and... One of the things you can do is present them with a concrete example and ask them to apply their philosophy to the situation at hand. Just this last week, Randy was in a discussion with an Episcopalian minister. And he allowed me to kind of see some of the email exchange back and forth. And one of the things I thought was most brilliant about what Randy finally ended up doing is he presented three scenarios to this man and asked him to comment on whether or not the individual was saved. He talked about examples like the thief on the cross. He talked about examples of a person out in you know, the middle of Africa. These sorts of questions. And he asked him to then comment on how would he apply his theology in those situations. Pretty much we were trying to have a discussion about whether or not this guy, what was his view on the Lord's Supper and and baptism, whether or not those were required for salvation. That's what we were kind of engaging with. So anyway, it's a great example of how we can go about doing this, is get them to actually write down or state how they would respond to a particular situation. Sometimes the quickest way to understand someone's position is to present them with a situation which ask, and then ask them to make a judgment. Because in order to make the judgment, you have to employ your theological and philosophical categories in order to make the judgment. And your judgment will expose what those are. So even for those people who don't have really well-developed theology and philosophy, when they make a judgment, then what we have to help them with is understand, trace it backward. Where does that come from? Why do you believe the way you do? You know, for example, how can someone give their life to saving the whales and meanwhile be for killing babies? How is that possible? Where does that come from? How can you present them? Okay, what should we do in this situation with these baby whales? Oh, we must save them at all costs. Well, then what should we do with human babies? Oh, well, if they're an unwanted appendage to a mother, we can get rid of them and exterminate them. Um, If they can make that sort of statement, we're now going to be able to trace that back to their theology and philosophy and what they believe about man. What do they believe about animals? What do they believe about God? Jesus makes use of story here. He's a master teacher. He certainly could have reduced all of his teaching to a bulleted list. He knew, but he knew that effectiveness in teaching involved not only content, but form. What is it that leaves an indelible impression on our minds? What learning will last with us for a lifetime? I remember a few teachers through my educational process that were super well organized, like amazingly structured wonderful in that regard. They presented everything in a nicely organized content way. They gave little bulleted points. And, but they did very little to ever inspire me. Ever had a situation like that? A lot of true statements, writing down the thing, filling in the blanks, doing the thing, but nothing really gripped your heart. Nothing really caused you to awaken passions and desire and drive to push forward. There are many teachers that do little to, to inspire, do little to leave a lasting love for the subject they teach, few that leading few students to crave, to grow and learn further on their own. I listened to the following story while teaching chemistry this last week. The following description of, is a description of true learning from a man named Ira Remsen. He was a chemist and the second president of John Hopkins University. And you have to listen to his testimony regarding this. While reading a book titled Chemistry, I came upon the the statement, Nitric acid acts upon copper. I was getting tired of reading such absurd stuff, and I determined to see what this meant. Copper was more or less familiar to me, for copper cents were then in use. I had seen a bottle marked 
nitric acid on a table in the doctor's office where I was then doing time. I didn't know its peculiarities, but I was getting on and likely to learn. The spirit of adventure was upon me. Having nitric acid and copper, I had only to learn what the words act upon meant. Then the statement nitric acid acts upon copper would be something more than mere words. All was still. In the interest of knowledge, I was even willing to sacrifice one of the few copper cents that I had in my possession. I put one of them on the table, opened the bottle marked nitric acid, poured some of the liquid on the copper, and prepared to make an observation. But what was this wonderful thing that I beheld? The scent was already changed. And it was no small change either. A greenish-blue liquid foamed and fumed over the scent and over the table. The air in the neighborhood of the performance became colored dark red. A great cloud arose. This was disagreeable and suffocating. How should I stop this? I tried to get rid of the objectionable mess by picking it up and throwing it out the window which I had meanwhile opened, I learned another fact. Nitric acid not only acts upon copper, but it acts upon fingers. The pain led to another unpremeditated experiment. I drew my fingers across my trousers, and another fact was discovered. Nitric acid acts upon trousers. Taking everything into consideration, that was the most impressive experiment and relatively probably the most costly experiment I have ever performed. I tell of it even now with interest. It was a revelation to me. It resulted in a desire on my part to learn more about that remarkable kind of action. Plainly, the only way to learn about it was to see its results, to experiment, to work in a laboratory. You see, Jesus knew how to make lasting impressions. He didn't just give bulleted lists. He told stories. He invited people in. He called them to think. He asked them to make judgments. And his stories capture the imagination. And they invite contemplation and discussion and evaluation. Jesus goes into this scenario with a given purpose. He's not just telling stories to tell stories. He has a purpose behind it. What he wants to do is get the leaders to speak on the record. So what they're doing to discuss then, what does it mean to do the Father's will? What does that look like? Because this is what indicates who are the father's sons. The father's sons do their father's will. The situation that Jesus presents here is a very simple, straightforward one. And it leads to a very simple, straightforward answer. But that answer or judgment then has to be applied consistently. And as a result, it has much the form of what Nathan did with David. When Nathan tells David a little story. And after David is outraged and wants to kill this man who has taken this one little ewe lamb from this other poor person, Nathan turns it and says, Thou art the man. Similarly here, what the Pharisees are going to learn is, Thou art the second son. And they're not going to like that very much at all. So Jesus sets up a scenario, and he calls for religious leaders to think and to give their opinion. Jesus presents here a parable involving two sons who respond quite differently to, point number two, a command to go. A command to go. The sons are both addressed in affection. The father starts with the term technon, child, son. It's like saying, my boy, right? It's this sort of feeling and graciousness. The sweetness of address makes all the more stark the coming reaction. This dad is not just barking orders. With terms of endearment and affection, he says, Son, boy, go out into the vineyard. You see, the sons are entrusted with a task to go work in the vineyard. It's a reasonable request. It's a request that would be expected of sons to follow through on, especially sons who lived still in their father's house. Tending the vineyard was important family business. And the only appropriate response was an immediate Instant, wholehearted, cheerful obedience. That was what should have happened on that day. And the sons are given a timetable. They're handled affectionately. They're given a task to do. And they're given a timetable in which to do it today. Today, the father says. He's not leaving possibility open for wiggle room. Oh, I was going to... On the next day, oh, I'm going to do it today. No, I said yesterday. I said today. There's no room for any of that. 
However, there does seem to be, in some sense of the fashion here, some sort of built-in patience, though, with the father as well. Because we don't see the father react to the responses of either son, whether good or ill. He just seems to walk away, leaving the matter to brew within their minds. So there is some amount of patience on the father's part, but there's also a deadline in which it's to be done. And don't miss this. Both sons are given identical commands. Verse 30 says the man then went to the second son and told him likewise or told him the same thing. So both the sons are addressed affectionately and they're entrusted with the same task and given the same time period. But the father is presented with vastly different responses. The first son represents those who refuse but then are brought to repentance. Those who refuse but then are brought to repentance. This first son rudely refuses his father's request and he says, I will not. You get the feeling that the son is dug in his heels. I am not going to do this. Now, this is a shocking response. We're not expecting this sort of response. This son blatantly sets his will against the will of his father. And certainly in any day, that sort of disrespect would be disrespect. But certainly in that day, in the honor-shame culture that existed, this was like hugely awful. But then upon further reflection, we're told afterward, the son repents. He thinks better of his former decision. He regrets it. He changes his mind. And this leads him to action. The son goes out into the vineyard and he works. This one had refused... But now he was led to repentance, which resulted in obedience. He refused, then repented, then obeyed. What about the second son? The second son represents those who are respecters, but then are shown to be rebels. Respecters who are shown to be rebels. second son quickly accepts his father's request. I, sir, I, Lord, we're curious here, I, Lord, I, sir... There's not even a verb given here. The economy of words almost give the feeling like it's almost like a military sort of response. Aye, aye, sir. I'm right on it, sir. I'm getting right about it, sir. Everything on the exterior looks perfect. It's exactly what you're looking for. Yes, sir. Right away, sir. I'm getting right on that, sir. The verbal response is everything that you could have dreamed for. Obedience without delay is being announced. However, following all the pomp and circumstance, this son never follows through. This son is a no-show. He does not appear at the vineyard. That surface compliance is shown ultimately to be hypocrisy, covering over a rebellious heart. The point is this. The words are empty without obedience. Can I say it again? The words are empty without obedience. Another way this is sometimes said today, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Well, the Pharisees are asked to give a judgment. What do you think? Which son did his father's will? Simple. It's the first one. It's the first son who did his father's will. Now, side note, I just want to say this is not meant to encourage rebellious words to our parents. Or to our Lord. The first son's initial response is wrong. Absolutely wrong. However, when we take a step back from the entire situation and view the entirety of it, it's the second son's promise without performance that should be more appalling than the original son's refusal to go. You get it? As much as on the surface, the one that looks the rebel is the first son. The second son looks like he's doing everything right. From an outward perspective at that moment, second son is the good son. First son's the evil rebel. But once we take a step back and consider the entire scenario, and we learn that it's the first son who feels bad about it, regrets it, and then goes out into the field and does what his father told him to, and the second son, who said, aye, aye, sir, I'll get right about it, sir, never goes, it's that second son. That should be all the more appalling. For now, he even promised something that he 
didn't follow through on. In other words, pretend obedience is worse than delayed obedience. Delayed obedience is still disobedience, not saying that that's right. But delayed obedience is better than pretend disobedience or pretend obedience. And the religious leaders condemn themselves in this judgment. We could say that the religious leaders here passed the quiz and failed the test. Right? They passed the quiz. They marked the multiple choice question right. You have pretty much a one of two options. You know, almost like true false, right? Which one is it? A or B? And they passed the quiz, but they failed the test. These remember the religious leaders had just punted on the question regarding John the Baptist. But this is what Jesus is getting at. You can't hide behind pretended ignorance. Okay, right now at this moment, religious leaders, you're not willing to make a statement about John the Baptist. You know what? It doesn't really matter. Why? Because your actions have spoken far louder than your words ever could. They had already made their statement. They had made it in the lives that they were living. And meanwhile, some notorious extortionists and promiscuous sinners who blatantly screamed no to God with their lives. Their lives said no to God. Living in prostitution, living in as a publican. These individuals whose lives screamed no to God when John came, they heard John's message and they listened. And they admitted their sin and they repented and they were baptized and they listened to John's message and they obeyed it and now they followed Jesus. They had all of the fruit in keeping with repentance. And meanwhile, the religious leaders were barren of it. Remember context? Fig tree? Jesus had cursed? No fruit on it? See, it was these notorious sinners who were bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, while the religious leaders held to their self-righteousness and were barren of fruit. We can almost be certain that the Pharisees would not have seen themselves to be in the position of the yes, Lord, but I'm not going, son. But that was exactly who they were. Remember the background of all of this? The Pharisees, the religious leaders all thought that because they were descendants of Abraham, that made them sons of God. To question our sonship? How dare you question whether or not we're doing our Father's will? We're children of Abraham. This leads us to the third stage of the exam. We're all given a call to repent. We're all given a call to repent. There's a call here for us all to examine ourselves. Verse 31, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, we're used to Jesus saying words like that, so sometimes they just don't hit us with the sobriety they should. The word truly there, the word amen. Amen. Verily. Truly. The point of using a phrase like that was to draw attention to the next words. Draw attention to the seriousness of this situation. And what does Jesus say after that? Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. He's saying here that these notorious sinners are entering into the kingdom of God before them. How do you think that made these prideful, egotistical religious leaders feel? What do you think they thought? Probably something very similar to when Jesus said, you're doing the deeds of your father, the devil. Jesus is not teaching that the tax collectors and prostitutes were sinless. He was just explaining that their position is more favorable than the Pharisees. Why? Because pharisaical hard-heartedness and self-righteousness will come to judgment. Whereas, broken-hearted, repentant sinners will see salvation. There's a call here to repent. The detested and infamous sinners were now forgiven and made children of God. Made joint heirs with Jesus. Brought into the kingdom of God. While these self-inflated, arrogant, judgmental leaders were standing outside of the kingdom. And apart from repentance, they would continue to stand outside of 
the kingdom. It would eventually go to judgment where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. When Jesus says they're going in before you, note that that doesn't just mean that they are all going in and this, these happen to go in first. He's saying here they're going in right now before you are going in. And if you remain in the same place you are, you will continue to be outside of God's kingdom. You see just how hard-hearted, though, these religious leaders are. How do we see that? Look at the next verse, 32. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. They wouldn't listen to the truth of John's message. Why? Their consciences had become so seared that they were unmoved by truth. They wouldn't consider the change that John's ministry had brought to other people's lives. They willfully blinded themselves to that change. Even when notorious sinners were being transformed by God's grace, they would not see it. Just like when Jesus was performing miracles, raising the dead, causing the lame to walk, healing the sick, they refused to see it. Their willful blindness is evident. They stubbornly refuse to believe John, and therefore they stubbornly refuse to come to Jesus. Reminds us much of the story of the prodigal son. Right? Remember the older brother? Can't ever forget the older brother. There's a big lesson being taught there in those parables of lostness. Remember the older brother is outside of the party, not happy. Not happy that his Remember, he keeps referring to him as your son, dad, your son, your son. And the father keeps going, your brother, your brother, your brother. But he's out there having a pity party for himself. He goes, I didn't get a fat cap, my friends. No, oh, we've all been there, haven't we? They're playing much this sort of situation. They're seeing desperately wicked people come to repentance and a change of life by God's grace. But they will not see it. After having seen the effects of all of this ministry from John the Baptist and now from Jesus, they continue to reject the Lord. And not only that, but they're absolutely appalled that John, and now Jesus here recently, has spent so much time with those lowlifes. How many questions come from them regarding this? Matthew 9 is a good example, verses 10 through 13. Christian read during worship from Luke 18. We see what the Pharisees really thought. Pharisees looked down upon this underclass of people. Thank God I'm not like this tax collector. See it? That's how inflated their thoughts about themselves and they love to put other people down. And what's so ironic and sad about the entire situation is the very people they're putting down are the ones they ought to imitate. It's that tax collector over there who's unwilling to even look up to heaven, but beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And meanwhile, the Pharisee sits there and goes, Oh, I'm so much better than him. I'm glad I'm not him. What irony. You see, Jesus stood willing to forgive, but these men stood unwilling to acknowledge that they were sinners in need of forgiveness. I feel quite remiss if we just went through this and just developed a lot of animosity towards the Pharisees. Let me ask of all of us, are we someone who answers theological questions with precision? Are you able to cross your T's and dot your I's on a theological question and yet fail to live out those answers? Put another way, have you said yes, Lord, and failed to go out into the vineyard? Have you given lip service to the Lord, but know it's all empty words? Do any of us escape that? If that's the case, what do we do? See, what's so interesting about this whole scenario is that the solution not only for 
publicans and prostitutes, but also Pharisees is found in the text. The solution for all three groups is found right here in this text. What are we to do? Well, we're called to go and work in the vineyard. What does that mean? What is the work in the vineyard? What is the going? What is the doing of God's will? I think all of these are phrases that are meant to be synonymous with believing John's message. And what was John's message all about? Pointing people to Jesus. What are we to do? Repent and believe. And those are gifts from God. Whereby a person who is dead in their sins and trespasses is made alive. And from that regeneration responds to God, admitting his sin and trusting in God's Son to save him. You see, the reason why Jesus had such strong words for these religious leaders regarding their rejection of John the Baptist is because John's ministry was so directed by God and it was so centered on Jesus Christ that to refuse John was to refuse Jesus. There was complete solidarity between Jesus and John. You see, John's life and message pointed the way of righteousness. Look at verse 32. John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. He came to you in the way of righteousness. What does that mean? Well, certainly we know that John's life and his message pointed the way to righteousness. But not only did he speak truth and live out truth, but he pointed to him who is the way, the truth, and the life. You see, his life was consumed with the way of righteousness because his life was consumed with Jesus. A person whose life is consumed with Jesus finds the way, the truth, and the life. What do we do? What do we need to do? We need to look to the Son who always does the Father's will. We need to look to the Son who always does His Father's will. You see, the good news is that Jesus' message not only calls us to examine ourselves, not only calls us to repent such that we despair of our own righteousness, but we're also called here to look to Him who has succeeded everywhere that we have failed. We look to Him who has succeeded where we have failed. God sent His Son, Jesus, who, unlike the two sons in the story, always said yes and always perfectly obeyed without delay. You see, entrance into God's kingdom is made possible because of the Son who always did His Father's will. Who always said, yes, Father, my food, my sustenance is Your will. That's what I'm all about. He's done all His Father's will, and therefore He stands able, willing, and ready to apply His righteousness to the account of any son who will repent and turn to Him. We need only repent and believe to look to Jesus. Whether you've lived as a publican or a prostitute or a Pharisee, you're invited to come to Jesus and be saved. You see, no amount of self-justification... No amount of self-righteousness will get you into heaven. But no amount of sin, no matter how great, can keep you out. This is because salvation is not dependent on your righteousness, but on Christ's perfect righteousness. And if you're in Christ, you're not judged on the quantity of your sin, but on the basis of Christ's perfect sinlessness. You see, what sinners need is to be in Christ. And God the Father loved the world in such a way, so much, that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Our Heavenly Father is long-suffering with us. We're called, while it is still called today, repent, look to the Son, look to Jesus Christ. God has been long-suffering. God has been patient. 
He calls us today to act. Why? Because if you're waiting for later, later may never come for you. We have no guarantee of further moments. So come today. Look to Jesus. You see, we all failed to do God's will. And thus we all ought to be judged. But God gave us sons so that we can exchange our failure for His success. Jesus takes our filthy rags and clothes us with His spotless garments. He passed with a perfect score so that we too can be found in Him and pass the test that only sons pass. I close with a fitting summary from J.C. Ryle. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is infinitely willing to receive penitent sinners. It matters nothing what a man has been in the past. Does he repent and come to Christ? Then old things are passed away and all things have become new. It matters nothing how high and self-confident a man's profession of religion may be. Does he really give up his sins? If not, his profession is abominable in God's sight and he himself is still under the curse. Let us take courage ourselves. If we have been great sinners hitherto, only let us repent and believe in Christ and there is hope. Let us encourage others to repent. Let us hold the door wide open to the very chief of sinners. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the marvelous gift of Your Son. The truth is, all of us have failed the test. All of us of our own righteousness are incapable of rightly relating to You. Even our best deeds are filthy rags in Your sight. But thank You that You haven't left us that way. That You sent Your Son the Son who perfectly obeyed, perfectly said yes, perfectly fulfilled all Your goodwill. And thank You that through Him we can have restored relationship with You. Thank You, Lord, that You are patient and long-suffering with the chief of sinners. Because I'm definitely that. Lord, thank You for the way in which You Demonstrate grace, mercy, and love to those who don't deserve it because otherwise there would be no hope for any of us. May You make Your name great and may You exalt Your Son as You adopt sinners into Your family through what Your Son has done on our behalf. We thank You. We pray in His name. Amen.